but do we have free will or does God uh, choose us? So, uh, yes, I don't know, it gives me a headache, <laughs> and let's sing some more with Brett, so thanks for coming today. It's pretty much uh, the short answer, so... Um, all right, we're going to try to try to dig into this, and um, we need to look at what Scripture says, and um, you know, understand that that the greatest minds in the history of the church have tried to understand this issue, and uh, some think they have, but nobody really has. And uh, just so you'll know, I am not amongst the greatest minds in the history of the church. So let's not set the bar too high, and you're not either, probably. So let's just try to look at what Scripture says. Um, you know, I, I don't consider myself to be like a systematic theologian. I try to be more of a, of a biblical theologian, you know, although I studied, uh, you know, took systematic theology in, in, in seminary and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, if you remember Dr. Aiken, who was here a few weeks ago, his dad was actually my systematic theology professor in, in seminary. Uh, I actually took a class in uh, seminary uh, called Calvin and Calvinism, uh, you know, if you're familiar with that. So I've actually done something that I think a lot of people who say they're Calvinists probably haven't done. I've read most of Calvin's book, you know, it's about this thick on, uh, you know, it's called you know, the Institutes of, of, of Christian Religion. I did not come out of that class a Calvinist. Uh, now, I will say, just to be up front, that uh, probably I'm not Calvinistic enough to be claimed by the Calvinist. Uh, I'm definitely not an Arminian, if you know these terms. If not, listen tomorrow. I have become more Calvinistic over the years, though. Not so much by reading systematic theology, but actually as I've preached verse by verse through Romans and Ephesians here at True Life. But uh, I, I would, uh, you know, consider myself to be what Danny Aiken calls a compatibilist. I believe that God is sovereign and we're responsible. I believe both of those are 100% true, 100% taught in the Bible. Uh, I, I believe that, um, you know, God is sovereign, that God is in control of all things, but that we make choices and we're responsible for those choices, and somehow even through that, that God is working out His ultimate sovereign will. It's a mystery. It's a paradox. The technical term for it is an, it's an antimony is what it is. Uh, two things that appear to be contradictory that are true at the same time, that they're not to be held in opposition to one another. They're to be held side by side with one another. And so that's what I'm going to try to show you in Scripture today. I want to kind of, and I'll talk about this in a minute before we get into Scripture text. And again, we're going to focus on this in salvation. Uh, you know, next month, Lord willing, we get Lamentations. We'll kind of try to unpack it in our day-to-day -day lives. But I want to kind of redirect again a little bit away from free will into more the idea of responsibility. So again, the big idea is God is sovereign and we're responsible. Now... When we talk about God being sovereign, what, what, what does that mean? It means that uh, God is independent, that there's nothing outside of God that's causing him or forcing him to do anything. It means that he's ultimately in control of all things. 
It means that he is working out his will. It, it means that there is nothing in this world that God doesn't cause or allow uh, to happen. It means that, that he's in, in charge. And, and, and part of um, just being human in the right way is recognizing that God is sovereign and we are dependent upon him. Um, in fact, what made the fall happen, what made sin enter into the world, was when our first parents, Adam and Eve, tried to live independently of God instead of living in dependence upon God. And if we're honest, we all kind of uh, struggle with this. We all want to think that we're in charge, that we can be in control. And I said this recently, but I think it's true that it, hopefully if we've learned anything from COVID or been reminded of anything, it's just this illusion that control is. But I think we have trouble uh, remembering that sometimes. Let, let me give you an illustration. And, and I'll try to give some illustrations. And, and, you know, but when you're trying to boil down something that, you know, where God is infinite, we're finite, and we're trying to translate the mind of God into practical terms, every illustration is probably going to break down on some level. So consider that. But uh, Friday, so, um, you know, Rob, my wife, works at Carson Newman. I picked her up for, for lunch at her office there on campus, and we had lunch. I, I brought her back uh, to her office. Uh, I ran by Walgreens, and as I was leaving Walgreens, you know where Walgreens and Jeff City is, so uh, I turned right to go out of Walgreens and was going to do a U-turn there at, at the red light where McDonald's is. But I, I see an ambulance coming toward me, on, on the other side of the road, so I just kind of wait through the red light, and then I'm waiting on uh, the ambulance. Well, while I'm waiting, uh, there's, uh, you know, at the red light, the, there's a guy in the lane next to me, an old guy in an old-school Cadillac, uh, cool car, that, that pulls up beside me. And so, you know, he stopped at the red light, ambulance is coming. Well, the ambulance ends up turning left there, you know, like, what would that be, turning left? I guess that's Russell, uh, there, Russell or George, you know, to go, uh, like, towards Carson Newman there. And so, you know, the ambulance is coming, you know, slowing down to turn, all these kind of things. But we're talking ambulance, you know, full lights, full sirens, uh, the, the whole deal. And, and so the, the guy starts to pull, starts to go through the red light. Then, uh, I don't know if he just then noticed the ambulance or what, but he stops. And when he stops, you know how sometimes people... Uh, will, and I don't mean this in a metaphorical sense, will use hand signals uh, when they're driving, you know, kind of wave people, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, like in, in Honduras, people blow the horns to communicate that way. But, but this guy stops, and he's waving the ambulance <laughs> to turn. I've never seen anybody do this before. And um, I'm, I'm thinking... Um, <laughs> Sir, uh, I mean, it's kind of like the ambulance has full control of the situation here, right? I mean, they, you don't need to wave the ambulance on. They have the right here. We're talking full sirens and, uh, and full lights to go ahead and turn, and you need to wait on them. And if you don't turn, if you keep going, you're going to experience the repercussions of this because you may have a wreck, 
and you've just committed a crime in going through here and not yielding uh, to the ambulance, and so you're going to experience the repercussions of that. But I, I, think, I think sometimes we're that way with God's sovereignty when we're like trying to tell God what he can do. When actually, when we ignore the fact that God's in control, we experience the repercussions of it. You get what I'm saying? God's sovereign, but we're responsible. Let me, let me just show you this in, in, in some different places in Scripture before we dig into and We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're, just going to, we're going to look at a couple of verses today that have to do with salvation. And I just want to point out some truths there to you. And at the end, I want to give you four words of application. But God's sovereign, we're responsible. Look at what the Bible says about that. Luke twenty two twenty two says, And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, God's sovereignty, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, human responsibility. You understand, when Jesus was betrayed and crucified, it fulfilled the will of God, but God did not force anyone to betray him. God did not go against someone's will in doing that. Acts 2.23 says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God's sovereignty, you have taken by lawless hands responsibility, have crucified, and have put to death. Acts 4, 27 and 28 says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Here's an Old Testament example. Remember the story of um, Joseph's brothers betraying him, and then he ends up being the second in command, ends up rescuing him? Here's how the Bible describes that. Genesis 50-20 says, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now think about that. I mean, and this will blow your mind, but I think comforts your heart at the same time. That God, who hates sin, hates evil. The Bible says he's neither tempted nor tempts anyone. Is so powerful and so good that he takes the evil, sinful acts of human beings and brings good out of them. That's what he did in that case. And he does that in our lives as well. Think about this. Acts 13, 48 says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And it says, And as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. And the phrase there, as had been appointed, is something called the pluperfect in the Greek, which you don't need to remember that word, but just know what it means. It means a, a, an action that was accomplished in past time. So at some point in the past, I would say eternity past, it was appointed by God that these people would believe unto eternal life. That sounds like all God, right? But listen to chapter 14, verse 1, just a few verses later. It says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. Did God cause them to believe, or did their preaching cause them to believe? 
Yes. I mean, that's what Scripture's saying. So, so there's a sense in which, and, and this is oversimplified, I mean, because we're to do all things that dependence on God. We work like it depends on us. We pray like it depends on God. Because it does. I mean, the more strongly I've come to believe in the sovereignty of God and God electing people, at the same time, the more, even though I've been doing it for a long time, I, I spend more time on my sermons now than I ever have in the course of my ministry. Because it, it's, it, it's sinful when we are, are lazy, slothful, whatever, and then we like depend on God to like bail us out when he's told us to do certain things and he's willed to work through what we do. So, uh, you know, don't use this as like an escape hatch kind of thing. Now, I said I'm going to focus more on our, on, and I think it's a better term to talk about our responsibility, but you say, what about free will? Do we have free will? Well, yes and no. Depends on maybe how you define it, I think. And so, l- l- let me just try to explain what I mean. We have a will. We have limited free will. Maybe you could say it that way. We, ha- we have a will. We make choices. Do we have a free will biblically? I would say no. It, depending on how you understand it. Here's what I mean. We have, the, we have a will. We have the ability to make choices. But you say we have a free will. Um, our will is always subject to the will of God. Anything I do... God allows me to do it. The Bible says in him we live and move and have our being. He's the source. The Bible teaches us, you know, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in, in the book of Acts, that we're born, when we're born, where we're born, to whom we're born, by the will of God. Our days are numbered, written in a book before we're ever born. I mean, I'm alive today. I'm breathing. I'm doing this. I couldn't be doing this if it weren't for the will and the grace of God. So, um, you know, obviously in some sense I've chosen to do this, but does that mean I have free will? That means I have some limited free will. My will is under the will of God. But second, to say we have free will is not really theologically correct because, and to use Martin Luther's terms, we're under the bondage of the will. There's three people in the history of the world that have had completely free will. Adam, Eve, and Jesus. Adam, Eve, and Jesus. Jesus never sinned. He didn't have a sin nature. Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature. But they sinned. And once they sinned, they were under the bondage of sin. And since we, Romans 5, have inherited a sin nature from them, we're under the bondage of sin. We sin we're we sinners by nature and by choice. And so in that sense, we are predisposed to, we're, we're conceived in, in, in iniquity. We're, we're bound to sin because that's our nature. So that means that we really don't have a free will. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We make choices, 
Those choices have consequences. I mean, if you don't believe that, the Bible doesn't make any sense. Choose you this day whom you will serve, uh, Scripture says. Uh, We reap what we sow. The commands of Scripture wouldn't make sense if we couldn't obey those commands. I'm just saying because we're bound in sin, we're dead in trespasses and sins, like we talked about last week, we're not... Uh, completely free to do the right thing. You say, well, does that mean somebody who's not a Christian can't make the right moral choice? Clearly not. But it does mean that anything we do apart from Christ is in some way tainted by sin. Because it's about self, ultimately. Read Romans chapter 2 and 3. It says there's none good, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. That's the condition of our will. I mean, you think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They had a free will, but they tried to live independently of God, who is really the only independent, truly free uh, creature. Instead of living in dependence upon Him, even with a free will, they were bound to live in dependence upon God. That's why I gave them the one command. And so, apart from that, they messed everything up. So, um, that's why I don't think free will is, is, we kind of have to nuance it, but I don't think that's the right thing to focus on. We have the ability to make choices, but does that mean that we're going to be able to choose God for ourselves on our own? And I believe very strongly, we may, depending on your theological position, you can uh, agree to disagree about the details of it, and I think we should, it's a secondary matter, but everybody here who believes the Bible is going to agree that we just can't decide to choose God on our own. No one seeks God. We're going to see very clearly, it, it takes a work of the Holy Spirit, and that is part of the grace of God, and part of why we can't save ourselves. So, with that said, let's look in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. And um, I'm just going to read verses 13 and 14. And I think this is a great biblical summation uh, of the doctrine of salvation. It says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning shows you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, let me point out five truths to you about uh, salvation that that I think every Bible-believing Christian clearly should affirm because they're clearly uh, taught in Scripture. And again, We can agree to disagree about some of the theological details of how all this works. Frankly, I I think that this is one of these issues that can be divisive in the church that is just dumb to divide over. Because, I mean, again, how do our finite minds grasp the infinite God and grasp the greatness of these truths? I want to try to help us understand today, at the end, why these truths are actually in the Bible, and hopefully it will be a word of encouragement for us. So we see here, first of all, that God's motivation for saving us is His love. 
We saw this in Ephesians 2.4 last week, but he calls them brethren beloved by the Lord. And so you remember last week as we were looking at Ephesians chapter 2 and those th- first three verses are kind of like a spiritual autopsy of how we're dead and we're under the wrath of God and we're disobedient and we're walking our own way. But then verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And again, he didn't love us because we're so lovable. He loved us because he is love. He didn't pick us. Um, He didn't pick us because of how good that we are. He picked us because of how good he is. Uh, It it, it would be kind of like, so there's a couple people in the room right now, Rusty Arwood and Will Ropes, there might be more, but both these guys play college basketball. And it'd be kind of like if we uh, were, you know, had a get-together and we decided to play basketball, and those two guys got passed over, and whoever the worst athlete in the room would be got picked first. That's essentially what God did with us. Because he loved us even before we were born. So if you wonder if, if, if God loves you and if he's with you and if he cares about you. and like If you're a Christian and sometimes you just kind of feel uh, abandoned or you just wonder uh, you know, if God's with you. If he loves you then, he's not going to stop loving you at any point in your life. It wasn't about you to start with. Romans 8, 37 through 39 says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You said, does that mean that God doesn't love everybody? No, God loves everybody. There's common grace available to all but there is a, a special uh, affection, there's a special grace, a special providence that attends the way of his children, of those that are chosen and saved in Christ. That's the reality. I mean, think about it like this. You know, my, my kids grew up playing sports, all of them played basketball. Jay played high school tennis, Lily's played uh, high school golf. Uh, but there, there was a brief uh, phase where our girls, Molly and Lily, when they were young, uh, were cheerleaders uh, for some kind of like like flag football, wasn't it, Molly? Something like that. And, um, you know, I have to say, this may surprise you knowing my bubbly, rah-rah personality, but uh, I'm not that much into cheerleading, okay? And uh, except when I was in high school, that's a different story, which I have <laughs> repented of now, just being honest in church. But, uh, I, you know, uh, cheerleading, I mean, like when I played sports, it's just kind of like they felt like they were in the way uh, to me. And, and, and so, um, but, you know, when you're a parent, you go and support your kids, right? And so they're out there doing their little cheers. And there's like a squad of cheerleaders. And there's a sense in which I knew they were all there. I saw all of them. But I really saw two of them. They were my focus. That's how it is with God and his children. He's aware of, he cares about everybody, but there's a special focus on his children. The the motivation, the foundation of our salvation is the love of God. But second, God shows us for salvation 
in eternity past. Notice what it says. It says, God from the beginning chose you for salvation. What does this mean? This means we chose him before, or he chose us before we chose him. Or you could say it, we chose him because he first chose us. I mean, Jesus said in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What are some of those blessings? He says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us uh, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Once again, circle back to what we talked about last week. If God chose you before uh, you were even uh, born, before anything even existed, and then he worked in time and space to bring about your, his will, which included your salvation, he did it. What credit could we ever begin to take for it? In fact, Ephesians 1.11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is working out his sovereign will in the world. He's working out your will, his will in your life. And so our lives then become one small piece of the bigger story that he's writing. That's how our lives fit into the whole picture. But, but, but understand that he sought you. No one seeks after God. He has to seek us first. Uh, there's a poem that was written in the 1800s by a British guy named Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. And he pictured Jesus, I mean, he, he was a believer, but he was running uh, from the Lord, and, and his life was a mess, and, and, and he pictured uh, Jesus, you know, pursuing him. And he said, I fled him down the nights and down the days, I hid from him, uh, and under running laughter I spread, for, I sped from those strong feet that followed, followed after me. But he described Jesus pursuing him. With an unhurrying chase, an unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, and majestic urgency. So just know, if God's chosen you, you can't really run from him. You might as well go ahead and surrender to him. Um, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century is a guy named John Stott. In his uh, biography, uh, the biographer described his conversion and it says, according to Stott, he owes his faith in Christ not to his parents or teachers or even his own decision, but to Jesus. And he referenced this poem, The Hound of Heaven. Stott said, quote, my faith is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. I want you to understand, if you're a Christian, that's your story. It's kind of like we can fill in the details of our life, but that's all of our stories. Number three, salvation is brought about through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. 
but we must respond in faith. Look again at what the text says. It says, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's not one or the other, it's both and. But why do we believe? I mean, we have to believe. We have to repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? We do that through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Father draws us. The Father sets us apart. The Father convicts us and works in us through the Holy Spirit. And again, uh, th this is where I'm talking about where Bible-believing Christians have to agree on this point. We can disagree about the details of how that works, but if no one is seeking God, God has to seek us, and God has to draw us, and He has to work in us some way by His, by His Spirit for us to be able to respond to uh, the gospel. And, you know, some people would say the Spirit does a work of regeneration, and so out of that work of regeneration, we repent and believe. Some people say the Spirit does a work of grace that enables you uh, to repent and believe, so you're regenerated. That's kind of where we disagree on the details, whatever, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's clear. My favorite quote on this, and, you know, if you just want to take maybe one uh, sentence, one phrase yeah, from this message would be this. D.L. Moody put it this way. You know, in, in John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the door of salvation. And he says the way this works, like if on this side of the door, if like, uh, you know, we're getting saved and we walk through that door, up above the door sill, uh, the, the, the sign would read, whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. But he said, you know, once we go through that door of salvation and we get around to the other side and we look above the door, uh, the, the, what it would, the sign above that uh, side of the door would read, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God's sovereign, we're responsible. Listen, Jesus commanded all men everywhere. Uh, the Bible says that he commands all men everywhere to repent. He said, repent and believe the gospel. If you're not a Christian, that's God's word to you uh, today. It's like, how do, you, how do I know if I'm elect? If you respond to the gospel, you're elect. I mean, that's just, just assume that. That's how this works. Whosoever will. We preach the gospel to all people, trust the Holy Spirit to, to draw people. But you know what that means? That means we're not responsible for the results. That's ultimately up to God. We just have to declare uh, the Bible accurately and then let God do with it what he will. Number four, flows out of three, but a little different twist. God ordains the end, which is the salvation of the elect, and the means, which is the proclamation of the gospel. You can't have one without the other. Look at what the text says. It says, to which he called you by our gospel. There, there's an effectual call, a working of the Holy Spirit that draws people to salvation, but it's never apart from the gospel. It's always through the gospel. And, and so uh, that, that means then that uh, Scripture 
And, and you see this consistently. People are like, well, you know, if, if, if election's true, if God chooses people, why proclaim the gospel? It's because God ordains the ends and the means. God has determined that the only way people are going to be saved is through the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, evangelism and election are never divorced in Scripture. They are always inseparably wedded together. Here's the way I like to say it. If you, and if this doesn't make sense to you, because I don't have a lot of time to get into it, read Romans 9 and 10. I think you'll understand. Here, here's the way I say it. Romans 9 and 10 are side by side in the Bible, and so they ought to be side by side in our theology. And what I mean just quickly is when you read Romans chapter 9, it talks about the potter and the clay and, and God hardening people's hearts, and he has mercy and compassion on whom he will. But, but then in chapter 10 it says, how do they call if they don't believe, and how do they believe if they've not heard, and how do they hear if, if no one uh, preaches, and, and, and how do they preach unless they're sent? Paul, uh, you know, who was the greatest theologian and the greatest missionary uh, of all time, says, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest pastors who ever lived, who, by the way, was a five-point Calvinist, um, said this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least make them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. He was known to pray in his pastoral prayers, Lord, save the elect and elect some more. That's the heart of God. That's the heart that God wants us to have. I mean, think of it this way. I mean, so occasionally in the news you'll see people like get trapped somewhere, like a well, a, a, like a cave, a mine, something like that. And, and so let's say you've got a group of people trapped in a cave, and the rescuers are working, uh, you know, to be able to rescue them. And, um, you know, they're, they're able to kind of make, uh, you know, some kind of opening. They're able to get one person out. And uh, that one person, the, the group has to decide who's going to go first, so they pick a person. Well, once that person gets out, then they shouldn't just run on and go about their lives. Their job then would be to provide the rescuers with all the information they could about those people's locations and whereabouts and that kind of thing and to do whatever they could to help the rest of them be able to be saved. If God has rescued you, he's rescued you so you can be a part of rescuing others. So number five, the ultimate purpose of salvation is the glory of God. Notice what it says here uh, in the text again. For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, this phrase, for the obtaining of the glory of Jesus, what does that mean? Well, during the course of uh, studying this week, I started with one idea, went to another, went to another, and ended up deciding, I'm just going to give you all three. Okay? So, number one, I think it refers to the fact that when we go to heaven that we're glorified. 
Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body. We're going to be like Him someday. Number two, we're in the presence of the glory of the Lord forever. Uh, Revelation 21, 23 says, The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And then we are glorifying Jesus forever through our salvation because God chose us, Jesus purchased us, the Holy Spirit drew us to Him. I mean, 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says, When He comes in that day, I love this phrase, to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe. You know what a lot of heaven's going to be? It's just to be admiring the Lord Jesus. I mean, like, you know, if you love someone, like, you just like to look at them. Like to think about them. That's a lot of what heaven's going to be. This is what he did for me. So, I think when you read this text, it clearly gives us these five truths. Salvation is rooted in the love of God. It says that we're chosen by God from the beginning and eternity past. The salvation comes through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth who has called us. He called us by his gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we can agree to disagree about some of the details, but this is just what Scripture says. Now, how does this affect us? How should it affect us practically in our lives? Well, I want to take the last few minutes I have left and just try to give you four practical applications here. Okay, four words. They all start with E, so maybe you can remember at least some of them. Here's the four words. Explanation, encouragement, exhortation, and examination. Okay? Explanation. Again, how can it be this way? How can God be sovereign and humans be responsible at the same time? Uh, Again, let me quote uh, Charles Spurgeon from a sermon he preached on August 1st, 1858. He says, I see in one place God presiding over all in providence, and yet I see and cannot help seeing that man acts as he pleases and that God has left his actions to his own will in a great measure. Now, if I were to declare that God or declare that man was so free to act that there was no precedence of God over his actions, I should be driven very near to atheism. And if, on the other hand, I declare that God so overrules all things as that man is not free enough to be responsible, I am driven at once into antinomianism or fatalism. That God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. In fact, he famously said elsewhere, when somebody asked how he reconciled the two, he said, I never try to reconcile friends. Um, he, he says, he goes on to say, it is just the fault of our weak judgment. 
two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth does spring. You ask me to reconcile the two, I answer that they do not want any reconcilement. I never tried to reconcile them to myself because I could never see a discrepancy. Both are true. No two truths can be inconsistent with each other. And what you have to do is to believe them both. God's sovereign. We're responsible. Listen, sometimes part of believing the Bible and what we mean when we say we're committed to the authority of Scripture is it means that we're committed to finding out what the text says, what it means, and believing it and acting on it, whether or not we understand it or even agree with it. That's what it means to be as submissive to the authority of Scripture. And really, that's what it means to trust God because faith is taking God at His word and acting on it. Number two, encouragement. So, these notes are coming from the Believer's Study Bible and uh, kind of framed in in this question. You know, why would the doctrine of election be in the Bible? And so, I I know who wrote these because he told us in a class in seminary one time, it wasn't Dr. Aiken, but since it's not quoted in there, I'm not going to, you know, reveal the name, but he's not a Calvinist, I'll say that, okay? But why would the doctrine of election be in the Bible? Well, Let's look at Romans 8, 28 through 30, and and, and let me give you four thoughts about this that I think are extremely encouraging. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And in the way that's worded in the Greek, all of these things, again, are past action that are expressed in ongoing uh, through to infinity. It's like it's good as, as good as done. If you're called, you're justified, you're as good as glorified. It's a settled fact. Okay? So, so what does this mean practically for us? Number one, as long as as the doctrine of election is in the Bible, salvation must be a gift of God alone. I mean, if God predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Remember what we talked about last week? When you look at verbs in the Bible, who's the actor? Who's the actor there? It's God. Maybe a great way to sum it up is what Jonah prayed from from the belly of the great fish, Jonah 2.9. He said, salvation is of the Lord. That's what this is saying. Salvation is of the Lord. It's His grace. It's a gift. He's offering it to you. Say yes. 
Number two, the doctrine of God's elective purpose guarantees the perpetuity of salvation. Unthinkable is the idea that one of God's elect could forfeit his salvation. A simpler way to say this, you ever heard it said, once saved, always saved. You can say it, the perseverance of the saints, eternal security. Listen, if, if salvation is the gracious gift of God, if it's the work of God from start to finish, if we're as good as glorified, how could we ever lose our salvation? That's not really the right way to say it. We would lose our salvation, but we didn't accomplish our salvation. I, if it was up to me, I would have stayed saved about 30 seconds, and I would have blown it. But if God has done it from start to finish, it is all the grace of God, and we're not only saved by grace, we're kept by grace. Number three, the doctrine of election assures a particular providence which attends the way of every believer. If God's heart is set on us in his elective purpose, we may be sure of his concern and providential intervention in our behalf. Remember verse 28? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What, what does that phrase mean, the called according to his purpose? Well, the next phrase defines it. It's those who are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Listen, if you're called by God, you can know that he is working all things together for good in your life. You may not fully experience some of that until eternity, but I mean, think about it. He's your father. His son died for you. His spirit drew you to himself. He loves you. He cares for you. He's not going to abandon you. If he did all of this for you, Listen, we, lived in a, we live in a fallen, messed up world, but just know the story of Joseph is your story. What people meant for evil, God meant it for good, even to bring it about as it is this day. You can trust him. You can trust him. And number four, finally, that same personal providence bound up in election extends throughout the entire course of history. There's no runaway world. God's hand is systematically guiding the age to its intended consummation. Remember Ephesians 1.11, he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8.21 and 22 says, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Even the creation is going to be delivered. So explanation, encouragement. Number three, exhortation. Back to 2 Thessalonians 2.15, it says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So there, there's an exhortation here. And what you think, it, it, it'd almost be like, well, you know, it's all under God's control. Just sit back and take it easy. But he says the opposite. He says, I've got it all under control. Stand fast and hold on to the truth. Why? Because God is sovereign, but we're, we're responsible. God's sovereignty is a motivation, it's not an excuse. Stand fast, hold firm. How can we stand fast and hold firm? 
because he, stand, he stood fast. He held firm. He uh, remained under the wrath of God. He accomplished uh, the payment for our redemption. He's with us and he's for us and he's enabling us and he's empowering us. You can stand firm. You can live the life that he wants you to live in the power of the Spirit because of who he is and because of what he's accomplished for you. And then last, I'll give you this word, examination. The Bible says to test ourselves as to whether or not we're in the faith. Are we elect? Are we saved? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll close with Scripture, starting in verse 4, says this. You know, it's writing to the same church, just a, a different letter. He says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. He's saying, you know, to the, to the genuine believers there at Thessalonica that God chose you. Well, how do you know if God chose you? He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you become examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, uh, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath uh, to come. So uh, how do you know if you're, you're saved? Have you become a follower uh, of the Lord? Do you believe the word of God? Has your life changed? Are you trusting? Have you repented of sin and laying down idols uh, to give Jesus first place in your life? Are you looking for him to come again? Those are characteristics uh, of true believers. And, and again, remember, God's sovereign, but we're responsible. God ordains the ends and the means. God is working this out in time and space. God is working his will out in our lives, even in the midst of a fallen and a, and a sinful world. But he's working our salvation out. And if we're saved, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and he's changing us. Is there evidence, is there fruit of salvation in your life? Have you repented of sin? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? That's the issue. Whosoever will, let him come take of the water of life freely. If you come, it's because you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. But have you repented? Are you trusting Christ? That's what he calls you to today. It's no accident that you're hearing the word of God preached. It's by sovereign divine appointment. And I believe his spirit is speaking to you. And now you are responsible to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, to trust in the gospel. Will you do that? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.